0: We are in the same time zone, which oddly, I can make that connect to uh, the, some of the ideas in your book, where uh, there's some sort of topological truth about the fact that uh, we exist in some sort of similar time in space at the moment, though we are separated geographically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly right. So it's, you know, it's calling different things by the same name.
0: Ah, yes. Uh, that
1: similar is, places on the globe.
0: That is uh, what, oh my God, do I have a note that says that ma- that's what math is? Uh, calling different things by the same names. Somebody said That's that.
1: That's what Poincaré said, one of his famous slogans. There it is. He has a lot. He was an aphoristic dude.
0: Uh, mathematics is the art of giving the same name to different things, which is what I'm going to say for the rest of my life is if I understand that in totality like you do. Uh,
1: You're going to understand it by the end of this discussion. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. This
0: is This is good. That is a- <laughs>
1: Down the they
0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 216. for me the bridge of asses segues naturally into a very important question that you spend an incredible amount of time on in the book and that question is how many holes does a straw have and i will ask the people for people listening take a second Pause if you have to and ask yourself, how many holes does a straw have? Ask other people around you this question too and get into it because believe it or not, you really can get into it. So I will hand off to, I will cede the floor to you, sir. How many holes does a straw have? My name is David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast and we will return to that question later in the show about straws and holes and stuff during our interview with Jordan Ellenberg who is the John D MacArthur Professor of Mathematics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison his writing has appeared in Slate, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe and he is the New York Times best-selling author of How Not to Be Wrong and in this episode we'll discuss his new book which is also a New York Times bestseller Shape: The Hidden Geometry of Information biology, strategy, democracy, and everything else. In the book, he explores how a democracy should choose its representatives, how to stop a pandemic from sweeping the world, how do computers learn to play Go, and why is learning Go so much easier for them than learning to read a sentence? Can ancient Greek proportions predict the stock market? What should your kids learn in school if they really want to learn how to think? And all of these questions, he says, are at their core questions about geometry. And to understand what he means by that, stay tuned, because right now, we're going to start the interview. But let me get me to ask straight away, like, who are you and what do you do?
1: So I am Jordan Ellenberg, and I am a math professor. Um, I was always interested in math my whole life. So I've had in some ways, like a very direct career course into uh, being a kid who was like really interested in mathematics to eventually growing up uh, into being a person whose actual job is to think about mathematics uh, on a daily basis. But so, but also somehow, I guess, accidentally, I've sort of become a writer, um, which is something else I was always <laughs> interested in. And I only came to understand, you know, later in life that those were things that could be combined. I mean, you talked about putting it into words. And of course, you know, if you look at research mathematics, by the way, if you were to, as I'm sure you often do, kind of Mm -hmm. go down to the library and like thumb through the latest issues of the Annals of Mathematics or Mm -hmm. the Journal of the American Mathematical Society or what Mm -hmm. have you. It is mostly words, actually. It's not just kind of like strings of computations and the occasional arcane diagram. Um, You know, when we talk to each other about math, you know, we're, we're mostly sort of saying words and gesturing with our hands. And so it's, it's not sort of, it's not sort of so far from the interior life of mathematics to like do this kind of work.
0: Um, the big, I like that a lot because I feel like, uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and jump into the deep end and then we'll swim back to the other stuff. Uh, I like,
1: all right, I hope we make it.
0: Okay. We might not, but it's fine. It's just the journey that matters that you were there with me along the way. I like, this i'm on a kick right now and i've written about this i just turned in a manuscript for my own book about how people do and do not update their priors but just that's not oh my gosh
1: congratulations
0: thank you that that was a five-year mission that book is, is a lot has a lot to do with uh at some point i had i felt like i had needed to explain how brains make sense of anything and i actually pulled a lot of material that you also talk about about starting with uh foundational, um, sensory modalities and, and geometries, and then moving, moving up through propositions and how that's a how a proposition even became a thing that we talked about. And the, uh, I've on a kick here lately about, uh, trying to articulate the ineffable and it doesn't really matter where it comes from. It just matters that it cross pollinates because once you have a word for a thing, then you can build, other things out of those words that's just what that's just what mathematicians do basically like they they, they come up with a single doodad to represent another thing
1: yeah and it's true and it's an endless discussion that people have about you know are we inarticulately recognizing the thing and then articulating it and making a word for it or are we in some sense actually bringing it into existence by naming it um I think in the end, there's no answer to that question. And it's kind of an iterative process where we're kind of bringing things into existence by naming them and naming the things that exist kind of at once. Like, I don't think there's a, I think there's sort of, you know, as with chickens and eggs, right? There's not really a, one is not really prior to the other.
0: You said you didn't much care for geometry and you were in a Hell's Angel math team circuit. And then you leap very quickly in the book to, if you take a powerful enough dose of psychedelics, you're going to go all the way back down through the uh, mountains and mountains of abstractions to some sort of base layer where you're going to see uh, geometries and topologies. What's going on?
1: I I mean, I think that what I was trying to convey is that geometry is built into us. I think that's pretty clear. And I think um, sometimes we can lose sight of that because when we do the subject in school, college geometry... um, it's presented in this, as this very formal and abstract um, and rigid thing, which you might imagine, you know, came to us from space, like certainly not like from ourselves. Now, you may think what I'm going to say, I'm going to kind of pivot on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. You may think I'm going to say, oh, why did we do this terrible thing of presenting this kind of like formal construct instead of this kind of primal in our bodies operation. Um, But I'm not going to say that because I think part of the charm of the subject is that both aspects are there. In other words, like, yeah, geometry is built into our bodies. It's part of the way we perceive the world. We fundamentally are always asking, where are things? Where are Mm -hmm. they going? (laughs) What do they look like? Those are all geometric questions. Um, But if we hadn't made that leap into formality, Um, then we would be able to do, then we would be limited, right, by what our bodies can do. We wouldn't be able to do geometry in like 10-dimensional space because we don't live in 10-dimensional space. We'd only be able to do geometry in two and three-dimensional space. And that would be lacking. So again, you know, Poincaré is kind of this recurring figure in the book. He just kind of like pops up everywhere. Um, He talks about it like if you go and see like the skeleton of a sponge, you know, under the water, like on the one hand, if there's not that rigid skeleton, the sponge can't really grow. On the other mm-hmm. hand, if you see the skeleton after the sponge is gone and you don't recognize that there was some living being there that that mm-hmm. is the shape of, then you're not really seeing the point of the skeleton. Mm-hmm. That's so, so good. That's the relationship between the two things. If we just learn the formality and don't understand that that's trying to reflect something that's in us, then I can't blame somebody for being like, what the hell is the point?
0: That's so good. And here's a quote from the book. And this is, for me, this is what would sell it to me. And I hope this sells it to everybody else uh ayahuasca this is you quote ayahuasca drinkers have a similar take the drug reboots the brain and lifts the mind above the tortured labyrinth it thinks it's stuck in Mm. that's good stuff
1: (laughs) you know honestly as a writer and you know us know this too the best thing in the world is when there's some line you you kind of patted yourself on the back (laughs) for writing and you're like yeah i nailed that one and then if anybody else ever picks up one of those you're like we're friends forever now we're fr- right. i'm going to send you christmas cards I, like now I, we're friends
0: yes we will now drink because of that line because uh exactly. I, I i feel that too like um i think a lot of whenever i have felt the most love and passion and obsession for mathematical concepts it came from something uh intuitive in this way it, it plugged into whatever i feel intuitively inspired by for me it would be like conway's game of life and uh sailor automata and stuff like that that I can get stuck on a rabbit hole of the internet forever, not really understanding it on a deep level, but but understanding it at the like level of like the weather system that that the molecules are made of. Where I'm like, oh, okay, so little doodads adhere, adhering to the laws of physics, globbing together over time. This will do that, and I start to feel the train of thought that I think Game of Life is supposed to to inspire in you, and then I see. People who have created starting conditions where they create an infinite fractalized game of life inside of game of life inside of game of life. Or there's a Turing machine or something in it. And I start to feel whatever it must feel like to actually uh, know what you're reading <laughs> and doing in geometry. Uh, so I really appreciate what you do, even though I feel like I have it would take me years to get to a level of being an actual uh, novice in this world. So it's really cool that you wrote, you write about it in a way for people like myself to get a lot out of it.
1: And I can't resist saying, by the way, I'm going to, I'm about to waste a lot of your time, David, but uh, if you have not already seen the uh, the iOS app, golly, I don't know who made this thing. Um, it runs lightning fast on an iPad and it basically, it has about a hundred different different lifelike rules that mm-hmm. you can explore or you can just kind of create your own rules and kind of like let it rip and sort of see what it does. I guess maybe we should explain this for people who uh, yeah, please do. don't know about this kind of wonderful thing. But, you know, the game of life is a very simple mathematical construct invented by a fascinating guy called John Conway, who unfortunately died of, of COVID last year. And he appears in the book again and again. Again, the sort of like master geometry who kind of pops up zelig like like where you least... Expected. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things he's most famous for in the world outside research mathematics is this thing called the game of life where you just like mark little squares on a sheet of graph paper. That's how he did it. He did it on paper, now we do it on a computer. Um, and there's a rule that tells you, okay, if these squares are filled in, then at the next turn of the game, this other set of squares are filled in. Um, and then you'd apply the rule again and again, and the configuration of squares changes. And something rather miraculous happens because the rule is very simple. You could write it on about two lines of a sheet of paper. Um, and it produces the most unimaginably Baroque, well, I was going to say patterns, but really it's the change in the patterns, right? Moving patterns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really encourage if you're listening to this to get this app Golly, which runs really fast and you can really see this thing go. Um, and it just brings home so vividly to people the way... A very short and simple set of rules can produce an astonishing amount of complexity in a way. I mean, I don't know if Conway thought of it this way, but you can think of it as a metaphor for geometry itself. I mean, the genius of Euclid and his way of uh, organizing the knowledge of his time was to say, hey, you can start from this very simple set of rules about what lines are and what points are and how they behave. And from there, the entire apparatus of everything we know about triangles and circles and parallelograms and what have you—it can all be built up. All this richness from this very small set of initial rules. It's—it's—it's amazing. It's,
0: it's, it's amazing. G O L L Y is the name of the app. I just—I just found it. Yes, I, I will play with this endlessly. Um,
1: my entry that's the end of your week, man. I've thick, killed your week.
0: Thanks. No, I've been looking for a new obsession. I've turned into manuscripts. Now it's time for me to go insane somewhere. Uh, I, I almost walked into the woods many times and just contemplated rocks. So the this is an opportunity to do that virtually. The 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 my entry point to this was um, this this concept was a Daniel Dennett book where he mentioned uh, rules for artificial intelligence, and then he backed up a bit and said, "Let's talk about Game of Life," and then he was like you know, this clearly demonstrates how everything around you exists. And I'm like, okay. And it just so happened around that time, uh, XKCD, the comic created my favorite comic that they've ever done, um, called, uh, a bunch of rocks where it's a, a person stuck in an infinite plane with a bunch of rocks and they use them to create a set of rules that is Conway's game of life basically. And eventually it simulates the universe. And, you know, he, but he moves one rock at a time, but on the time scale of the people within the universe, something happened. And, you know, that's the whole the way to like conceptualize it. I can't get enough of this idea. I can't get enough of the concept that a very simple set of rules, uh, then put in motion in frames. So every frame, something changes, uh, some things in that environment will be better at sticking around than others. And then, as you add layers and layers of abstraction to that, as, the, as those rules become rules in a game that has rules that are the rules of other games and up and up you go, you can get to very complex things and you just start to see this, the you start to get a sense a feeling a an emotional reaction that feels a little bit like hmm i kind of sort of understand this now and it feels very similar to that moment when you're when you are on mushrooms or something like that and you understand everything for three seconds and then you're like oh no i lost it
1: (laughs) and by the way that that feeling you're talking about that feeling of like i can just almost touch it i kind of sort of get it i can feel that there's something there that i can't quite articulate see i feel like the way you're describing it you're like That's me, David McGraney, and you, Jordan Ellenberg, have mastered it and you know it. No, I want you to know that that experience of I kind of sort of get it, something I can't quite describe. That's like every day of your life as a research mathematician. Like, yes, there's sort of some things you know, but that's not where you want to spend your time, right? You are always like at that frontier and like Mm -hmm. those things that you sort of can't quite talk about, but you can sense that they're there is that's where you live.
0: Let me drop another quote from your book because there's a quote right here in this. Area that we're talking about, you say that uh, geometry isn't out there beyond space and time; it's right here with us, mixed in with the reasoning of everyday life. Is it beautiful? Yes, but not bare. Geometers see beauty with its work clothes on. Again, you did it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. That's how you ease us into Euclid. So that's what I'm going to do as a as a segue to go to pull it back uh, from Conway, where we where Euclid eventually gets us. Um, you. Cleverly bring in Lincoln here, and I remember seeing uh, the movie uh, about Lincoln, in which Daniel Day Lewis goes through Euclid for a second and talks about the idea that if two thing if two things are equal to the same thing, then they those two things are also equal to each other. Um, and this is a a uh, proposition that is a self evident truth. And then later on, Lincoln starts dropping some Euclid lines in his in his uh, in his speeches. Um, I won't overtalk this. You tell me about this. Tell me how you connected Lincoln Lincoln to Euclid in your book.
1: Yeah, so I didn't see this movie. I probably would have saved myself some research time if I had because this was new to me, actually. I learned it uh, writing about this stuff, sort of Lincoln's fondness for Euclid. And as he told the story to interviewers at the time... Um, he was troubled by the fact, you know, this was, by the way, he had been in Congress once, but it was before he was president. So we're talking Lincoln in the 50s, the 1850s. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's going into court day after day, and he's being asked to prove things, to demonstrate is the word he uses. And he said he found himself asking, what does this mean? What is a demonstration? What is that? And he realized that he needed to go back to Euclid to understand what a demonstration was. Remember, Lincoln doesn't really have formal schooling, right? So he's not like, you know, I contrast him in the book with Jefferson, who also loved geometry, but from the point of view of being this kind of patrician person who had, of course, had all the proper education. Lincoln didn't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, But Lincoln recognized that he needed to, or wanted to, I should say, um, go get it. And it's, you know, I love like reading just the people around Lincoln talk about him. I probably, I put a lot of quotes in the book probably too long because I just love listening to his buddies talk about him. <laughs> um, and what, you know, what they say is that, you know, what's special about Lincoln and what does it have to do with Euclid? It wasn't that he was like so brilliant. You know what I mean? They, they His friends say like, look, lots of people in politics are like extremely intelligent and clever. They said, no, what's special about Lincoln is that he had this habit of Not wanting to come to a conclusion unless he'd really backed it up, not wanting to say something unless he really felt like he could demonstrate it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what it's funny because I found myself backtracking a bit in the book. I wanted to say, because you could say that's what he got from Euclid, or you could say that's just what he was like. And Euclid was like that, too. And it resonated with him. He like found something in Euclid that he was like, oh, this is where I want to be. Again, chicken and egg.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, this This is something in my, my – one of my great heroes is, is James Burke, and I remember him starting his discussion on the Connection series about how did humans – like, what was the actual monolith that was put forth and caused us to accelerate our evolution, right? And he talks about geometry. It's like it's straight up, like, like this line and this line and this – you know, if you know these two things about these two things, then now you know a third thing that is not – in in the evidence in front of you it's in the evidence generated by your brain yet it is a truth it is a truth that cannot be denied and the idea that you could extract truth from the universe from incomplete evidence and you could trust that that truth would be would follow because of the propositions have been so clearly defined was the thing that s like, was the promethean fire right so that's that's in the, your book, too. You talk about that right away, using Lincoln as someone who was like, yo, this is crazy, y'all. <laughs> like, like this is good <laughs> stuff. And um, you write about how in the mind of a, of a geometer, you don't settle for leaving things half understood. You trace back your steps through using reason, classic reason and, and classical logic, and you will because of that, be able to then work your way forward through steps. There's a back propagation and then then an actual propagation that comes about because of being able to think this way. So the gift of this, this, this is something that was never taught to me in any math class ever, but I have since found a better understanding of it later because of people like yourself, that this is how we bootstrapped our, 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 how we, you know, Ratched it and extracted from the universe a spark by which we could then like gain some momentum and move forward and say, okay, we can build an idea on top of an idea until finally we have very complex ideas, but we can trust that all the way down it's been um, rigorously uh, understood or at least it's been shown to be these propositions hold true, and that's why like it never made sense to me like we had to prove that two plus two equals four, and then it didn't make sense to me ever that this is very difficult to prove actually. And, you know, then I'm like, because you make a big point in the book, like it seems like it should be obvious because we have some sort of um, po- possibly biologically uh, gener- created by proteins that are instructed by genes, intuition for certain things that can then be later described using the language of mathematics. Um, but just because it seems uh, obvious doesn't mean that it is, especially not to... A mathematician, if you could talk about that at any length, I'm interested in that idea.
1: Yeah, and I do, but actually, I'm going to start because now you, since you opened up the topic, and I, I, I like to ask everybody. So I hope it's okay if, like, sure. I review you, you for one second. What, what you, you, what was your experience learning math and especially learning geometry as a kid? Since you brought it up, I'm going to ask. I like to ask everybody.
0: It was, uh, it was connected to nothing but the math itself. So it was, it was, it felt like, um, it felt like the, a, it felt like a task to memorize things, to make A's on tests. And I didn't understand, I had no concept in any of my math classes, even all the way through college math courses, how it connected to anything in the physical, how it connected to any deeper truths philosophically, how, what the history of it was. I had no concept of like, where did this start? What was this built on? What is sort of like the, the, what is the genealogy of this idea? The idea that all of this had a philosophical shroud around it, that it was couched in ideas of what does all of this mean and how does this help us relate to our very humanity came way later. It was not in any of my math classes. And also the gift of uh, animations and GIFs and things on the Internet allowed me to see things like uh, the way Pi Actually, what what it's how it actually is related to the natural world, or the Fibonacci sequence, or anything like that that wrote the, whose signal has risen above the noise on the internet. Seeing it visually really changed the way that I understood the thing, and 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 that was completely absent from my entire experience being taught it in schools.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, wow, there's a lot there, and I think you know one thing that I really try to do both in this book and the last book actually is to humanize the practice of mathematics. And what I mean by that, you know, one thing people sometimes mean by that is to say like, okay, what does this have to do with my daily life? Like I have like mm-hmm. a roast beef that's shaped like this, what's its volume or whatever, you know, just sort of to, like, to make it, <laughs> to, to make it relevant. That would be a thing that you might ask. Um, but I mean something a little bit different. I mean, what, what you said really resonated with me that you said like there was no genealogy There was no sense of like where these ideas came from. Whereas, you know, the truth of the matter is that mathematics is a human activity and every single formalism we have in mathematics was Mm -hmm. created by people to solve a problem that they had. And they were less confused after they developed this formalism than they were before. So one of the things I try, I always try to do when I'm writing um, is to go back and try to say, I love the word genealogy, actually. I don't think that word appears in my book. It probably should. To say like, not just what is the idea, but like, what was somebody trying to do Mm -hmm. when they created this idea? Mm -hmm. Because that's where, I mean, every idea comes from somebody having a problem and then finding a way, uh, and then finding a way to solve it. Yeah. I mean, it's even, by the way, even in in math education for professional mathematicians, even when you go get a PhD, um, we don't learn the history of the subject. I learned this stuff to like write the books. I, I often I've, don't know what I've, we're trying to look,
0: do. Look, as a as a per, as a science journalist, like I usually one of the one of the tricks of science journalism is to go into the history of an idea and to use that as the narrative that helps leaven the bread, right? So you say this is where this comes from, and this person was ridiculous, and this was a maniac, and then you mm-hmm. can kind of and I learned all that from watching James Burke, like and it uh, even in the history of. Um, of uh I re- I mainly write about social science but which is nothing but maniacs uh, doing really <laughs> weird stuff until somebody comes along and says you really have you thought about maybe this is unethical and, then, and so that, and the but even like uh in the history of ideas I, I learned that just recently that uh, the story I'd ever had been told about Socrates forever was way more fun whenever you re- whenever you find out that the the people of his era didn't really believe in original ideas. They thought that if you if you came up with an idea that it was you know a god or a godlike entity came along and put it in your head, but for some purpose. And Socrates comes along with these very strange ideas and they're like, Hey, where are you getting this from? Because nobody else is getting those. And he's like, I get them from another
1: dimension. I get the there's an there are another set of <laughs> Wow, that's like flatland. Yeah, yes. I didn't even know that I would have yes. put that in if I'd known that.
0: There's another, Socrates said that there was an alternate dimension where there were daemonia who would give him ideas and they weren't giving them to anybody else. And the reaction in uh, Athens was okay, we probably don't want ideas coming from other dimensions. So will you drink this, please? <laughs>
1: Wow. Yeah, I could have used that. I'm sure Edwin Abbott knew that. I didn't know that, but I'm sure Edwin Abbott, who wrote Flatland, knew that and consciously had it in mind as he sort of told his story of like the sphere invading Flatland from three dimensional space, bringing with it these kind of dangerous ideas about the third dimension.
0: Yes, it's perfect. And that's, um, I mean, I feel like your book does this so well, it does it from every possible direction. It says, this is the history of the idea. This is the humanity of the idea. This is the reason that it's uh, your humanity connects to this idea. And also, here's some drawings and some crazy shit that you've never heard of before uh, that will that will show you how weird my life is as a mathematician. It's really good. I really I like the way that you presented it. I, and I've seen a couple of authors attempt it, but I think you stuck the landing maybe best
1: of all. Oh, th- thank you. I You know, I think this idea of like, Another thing that just reminded me to connect this idea of talking about the history and genealogy with education is that in some sense, what's required of you to write about where these ideas came from and what's required of you in the classroom as a teacher, which is what, you know, I am most of the time when I'm not writing books, um, both require you to imagine your way into the state of not understanding the thing, Mm -hmm. right? And when you're a professional mathematician, something that I've known very well for 25 years, there is an act of imagination required to put myself into the mind and into the, situ- the cognitive situation of my students who are just learning it for the first time. And if you can't do that, it's hard to be a good teacher. Mm-hmm. See, But that's exactly what you're doing when you do the history. You're saying, let me go. Let's roll back the clock to the moment at which literally nobody on earth really clearly and articulately understood this concept. And yes, what that it's the like?
0: best. It's the best for me. Um, Piaget, the the psychologist who's famous for the experiments showing that kids don't understand how much water is in a glass if it's tall. <laughs> like, right. like he was doing all that to try to demonstrate that um how brains update as they uh are revealed the magnitude of their ignorance in one domain to the next. And you write in the book, the ultimate reason this is quote, the ultimate reason for teaching kids to write a proof is not that the world is full of proofs, it's that the world is full of non-proofs. And grown-ups need to know the difference it's hard to settle for a non-proof once you really familiarize yourself with the genuine article. That's great. I love everything about it. It relates back to the Piaget thing that it gets on my mind a lot right now. And you also say that what Lincoln took from Euclid was integrity. There's the principle that one does not say a thing unless one is justified, fair, and square that one has the right to say it. And geometry in that sense is a form of honesty. And for me, that like tunnels all the way down to, yeah, that's why math is great, right? Because you're... uh you're really digging into the, the the bedrock of what is going on exactly out there right now. <laughs> like we you know, what is all this? And oddly enough, on a piece of paper, you can find things that not just like the ne- the other line of the triangle that you didn't see at this point. With the the amount of work that's been done, that you're like getting notions of a very intense alternate dimensional concepts that perhaps will turn out to uh, be observed with some sort of tool or instrument one day. And to me, it feels like, you know, hey, that's some demonia from another dimension uh, whispering in our ears saying, take a look at this stuff that you haven't seen yet. I don't know. I love how all of it fits together for me personally.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny you say that and it makes me reflect. I don't want to oversell in the following sense. There are plenty of professional mathematicians out there, like well-versed in all manner of advanced geometry. And I'm sure I'm sometimes one of them who believe all kinds of crazy stuff, <laughs> 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 which is like not boring. So, you know, maybe the way I'd say it like this, I don't, I, I'm, I'm always tempted to oversell, especially when crafting an aphorism, but um, I don't want to say it makes you invulnerable, but maybe I'd say it gives you a tool. It's like, you probably have friends who know a lot about like meditation right sure and are they serene all the time like no <laughs> but they have a tool <laughs> right there is like a tool they have access to that has value to them um and That's maybe good. it's a little more like that because I, w- I wish i could tell you that the world of mathematicians was a world in which we just like constantly went around being like utterly honest with each other and with ourselves no, no, that be great? would, no,
0: like that would be, that? that would be great. I know that's not, no, um, we're, we're still, uh, you know, we still have, uh, um, we still get sad, uh, whenever it's, uh, the weather is a little, like, we're still like primates. Let's not get, let's not go too far here. <laughs> like, uh, like there's a thing where, uh, I think Neil Grass Tyson, borrowed this from from a comedian but the idea you know you show a dog a card trick and uh you know nothing happens there uh <laughs> so like <laughs> if you try to show uh you know, euclidean geometry to an ant nothing happens and i think he took the um that fur farther it was like i can imagine a a similar thing happening a couple of uh ratcheted degrees up to us from some Uh, super sentient life form. I would like to think that human beings could eventually figure out everything, but there may be uh, a cognitive uh, restraint in that regard. We may be uh, cognitively bounded, as they say, rationally bounded, as they say in psychology. I don't know, but I do know it excites me to no end the idea that we can um, force our way into a higher understanding of the um, natural universe through this trick we figured out, this language we figured out to describe the, the world. And geometry is like the essence of it. And you you that's the the point you drill home quite a bit in the book. The you talk about Euclidean geometry, two th- two things equal to the same thing are thereby equal to each other. And then you know that seems obvious, but then you have to like prove it somehow you have to show like what's the underlying uh what's the, the what are the atoms and molecules of that mm-hmm. idea and then you pivot into non-euclidean geometry and you use this phrase that i've never heard before and i'd like to hear you wax poetic about it and that is the bridge of asses
1: yeah that's a you know the bridge of asses the pons asinorum as we like to say if we're in polite company or just if we think we're around people who don't, don't know that it means the same thing um, it's a famous proof that it appears pretty early in euclid in the first book but in some sense It's one of the first really difficult proofs um so it's called that um you know because it's something that we know people need to be led across uh the first time i see it if you want to get technical about it which i will for one moment it's the statement that an isosceles triangle a triangle with two sides the same also has two angles the same um and i like writing about it in the book because it's a perfect example of something which on the one hand to really explain to yourself formally how you know that's true um, is a bit complicated. And yet there's also something that speaks directly to the intuition because what you feel is that if you have a triangle and two sides are the same, that you can just flip it over and it doesn't change. It's the same viewed like from the from your left, with, through your left eye and through your right eye. And that's an example of something that undoubtedly Euclid understood. mm mm-hmm. But it wasn't really in his toolkit he really resists writing about symmetry because um it somehow wasn't something that he built into his system um but in fact i mean the perception of symmetry that's definitely something that's built in and i would say to a modern geometry uh, sorry to a modern geometer um that notion is completely fundamental, like what counts as the symmetry. This comes back to Poincaré's maxim about calling two things by the same name. Um, you know, is, it, is a triangle, when you flip it over, is it the same triangle or a different one? There's no right answer to that question. It sort of depends which things you care about.
0: And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. And now we return to our program. Well, for me, the bridge of asses segues naturally into a very important question that you spend an incredible amount of time on in the book. And that question is, how many holes does a straw have? Uh, and I will ask the, for people listening, take a second pause if you have to, and ask yourself, how many holes does a straw have? Ask other people around you this question too, and get into it. Because believe it or not, you really can get into it. So I will hand off to, I will cede the floor to you, sir. How many holes does a straw have?
1: Yeah. Let me preface it by saying that people really do get into it uniformly. I almost feel like, you know, if I were doing events in person for this book, which under the circumstances I'm not doing, I almost feel like I'd be tempted to just start with that and say, take 10 minutes and argue about that before I even talk about anything else. And then you'll really know what this book is about before I say one word about the book. Um, Because people really get into it. It's one of those things where people think the answer is obvious. And then they're absolutely stunned to find out that the person standing next to them also thinks the answer is obvious, but it's not the same answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, it leads you into asking, wait, what is a hole? What does that even mean? <laughs> so just to say, I mean, there's sort of three answers that people give.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some people will say, well, there's no holes in it because a straw, you can make it out of a rectangle of plastic, right? Mm-hmm. Attach the ends together. Now it's a straw. A square doesn't have a hole in it. and I didn't punch a hole in it. So
0: still mm-hmm. no hole. That's right. one view. It's a minority
1: view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who say there's one hole will say, there's almost no argument. Right? They'll say like, well, look at it. There's there's the hole that goes all the way through. And people who say two holes will say, well, look, there's like a hole in the top and there's a hole in the bottom.
0: Right. And, and you, and you people, talk about like there's an argument to be made where like uh, someone was like trying to get someone else to understand their position on it. They said, how many holes does a vase have? And they're like, it's got one. So if I poke a hole in the bottom, how many does it have? And... The thing is, some people will say, same hole, and others will say, no, I have added a hole. But to use language to describe it, you necessarily must say, I poke a hole in the bottom. So therefore, I have added a hole to the thing. And now we don't know if we're playing a language game or we're playing a mathematical game. And I love it.
1: But this is narrower. I'm a big believer that the mere fact that everybody who hears about this actually feels move to argue about it. They feel on some level personally attacked. <laughs> if somebody doesn't agree with them about the answer, you can see people get really head up about this. And I love, I, I cannot even tell you how many of these videos I watched on the internet while I was like prepping this chapter. Um, as a math teacher, you love that because we look at it and we say, the reason that people are getting so exercised about this issue is that they're recognizing that there is an actual mathematical issue here. They may not call it that. They may not use those words to say it, but um, it exactly speaks to my contention that that sort of math sense is in us all, and we kind mm-hmm. of like react when, when something touches that nerve. We're like, "Wow, what's going on?"
0: I feel the same way about the um, is a is a hot dog a sandwich because it because what's because <laughs> what's happening there is you're having to c- consider categorical thinking. And what are words abstractions for? And what is what are we trying to articulate? And what is what are these things define? What is the what are the agreed upon terms? And what is the proposition? All of these things, which usually are in the domain of philosophy, and then at some point in the domain of psychology, and then on, even all the way up to politics at some point, these are these are at their heart can be mapped onto logic and reason principles that are mathematical in nature. And you really illustrate that in the book with this: how many holes does a straw have? Issue. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, but when you say they can be mapped on to things that are logical and mathematical in nature, that is absolutely true. But at the same time, what I would not say, and it's always a danger because in math, we kind of have an imperial tendency that we have to constantly resist. What I would not say is that those things can be reduced Hmm. to purely mathematical questions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what's nice about the holes in the straw, and then I go on from there, by the way, to talk about how many holes are there in a pair of pants. This, 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 then then it gets harder still.
0: This got me. I was like, I really wanted to actually be, uh, in the depths of a psychedelic freak out (laughs) because when you said, how many holes do pants have? I'm like, oh no, I've, (laughs) now I have to think about that. It's a
1: challenge for the one holers, right? Because the people who are very, very sure there's only one hole in a straw those people will still talk about the two leg holes of their pants.
0: Mhm. But right? really, no but-, <laughs> but, but what's the topology of, of the uh, of the, <laughs> the the inner range of a pair of pants? I have to follow on the side of we got two holes here, but you say in the book a straw has two holes but they're the same hole, which is the way that <laughs> the way you rise above or way beneath language in some way that is very satisfying.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, and somehow it almost has to be that way. If there's two very compelling answers that both seem to sort of strike a chord and feel right mathematically, it's very rare that the right conclusion is one is right and one is wrong. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's we just have to sort of understand the right vantage from which they're both correct. Because if there weren't, if that vantage didn't exist, then probably people wouldn't feel so strongly Uh, in favor of of both of those. There's a
0: diagram where you can see a a three-dimensional object that from one perspective looks like a a sphere and from the other perspective it looks like a a cube. But it's it's just topologically complicated and depends on what vantage you take. And uh, I find that fascinating and wonderful.
1: Right, and imagine it would be a sterile argument to be like, well, which is it? Is it actually round or is it actually square, right? That's the question is really like, why do I... (laughs) have this ability to perceive it as round and also to perceive it Mm. as square. Like Mm -hmm. what is its nature that causes it to be that way? Mm -hmm. That's the right question.
0: Yes. And combining it's combining the perspectives and then like realizing that alone, I can't do this on a piece of paper. I might be able to describe it, but somehow combining your perspective and my perspective does come to some sort of higher order view of the thing. And I think that's really cool.
1: And this is what, you know, and I write about, it's a little bit hard to do in audio without pictures, but this is what the great uh, geometer Emmy Noter like was able to understand that any notion of whole that was like flexible enough to actually reason about um, had to have this property that holes could be added and subtracted to each other. They form what's called a group that you can do arithmetic with them. So that in particular, it makes sense to say that, you know, just as like, Three and negative three are two different numbers, and yet they have a relation with each other. Mm-hmm. They're not completely independent from each other. You know, that was what, uh, in kind of nurture's theory, the two holes in a straw, I start by saying there's two holes and they're the same, but really, then I go back and revise that once we understand it a little bit better and say, there there are two holes, but one is the negative of the other. That's really the right way <laughs> to think of it. And right, you feel that way, because after all, in any given moment, the milkshake is either flowing one way through the straw. Or the other, and if it's flowing in one hole, it's flowing out the other. There is some kind of relation of oppositeness between the two.
0: You need to get with your publisher and have a paper straw uh, uh, come with the book. Like maybe it's like glued to the <laughs> spine. That would be that would be killer. Uh, <laughs> uh, the. There's a lot of weird stuff like that in the book that these these phrases pop out to be like, um, you talk a lot about mosquitoes at some point in service of a greater idea, but you lead into it by talking about something called the scrunch plane. Um, what's a scrunch plane?
1: Oh, so this is where I really try to sort of express something about this, like just how general this notion of symmetry can be. Because I think people have, you know, the word symmetry is an English word. People know what it means for a building or someone's, Face to be symmetrical or something like this, and they imagine, um, you know, flipping something from left to right or flipping something upside down as a, as a possible way that something could be symmetric. But the notion is like much more general than that. Um, you know, for instance, you could think of expanding something by a factor of ten as being a certain kind of symmetry. Uh, you could say what kind of things look the same if you expand them by a factor of ten. That's a little bit hard to imagine. Um, but it is a kind of symmetry. And just as um, you can you can imagine somebody saying, I have a shape and you have a shape that's exactly the same, but twice as big. You might, under some circumstances, you might call those the same shape, right? If all you care about mm-hmm. are the angles between things and the relative sizes of things, mm-hmm. somebody else who actually cares how big something is might not consider them the same. So the scrunch, I just try to get really a little bit exotic and talk about... Um, these kinds of funny transformations where you, where you may say, huh, these things really don't seem the same to me, but I can imagine myself into a world where I consider this kind of one directional stretching, which just, I called a scrunch because it just seemed like a funny word me. <laughs> and I like words that sound funny. It's not a technical term. You don't feel like looking up. No,
0: you just did what Kant did. Um, you
1: made a word. Wait, what words did Kant make up? He made up the word oh, angst. angst. Yes, he yeah. told me that.
0: Which I think is great. Like, it's not that it didn't exist. It's not that nobody had that feeling before. But he was like, it really makes it, if I turn this into a brick, I can then build things out of this brick instead of, and then that gives me the ability to have a much more complicated abstraction. So, uh, yeah, scrunch away.
1: Yeah, so what's, you know, so you can set it up as this kind of purely abstract exercise and saying like, what if you allow things to kind of get stretchy in one direction and change what you think of as their shape, you know, which things would stay the same and which things would be different. And on the one hand, that seems like a possibly sterile abstract exercise. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what it turns out is that in the history of physics, you eventually have to accept that these kinds of symmetries are the ones that space-time actually has. So this is what happens when you start to really wrestle with Um, how relativity works. And you know, this, uh, this phenomenon of the Lorentz contraction Mm -hmm. that things do at relativistic speeds, they undergo a transformation that we sort of slowly and naive beings think of as changing their shape, right? We call it a contraction. We say, oh, the train gets kind of like smushy as it like gets near the speed of light. Right. Um, But From a sort of more geometric viewpoint, we would just say, no, what the actual symmetries of space are, are not what we thought, and that thing's not changing its shape. It's just undergoing some kind of four-dimensional scrunch. But a la Poincaré, thinking of things correctly means thinking of two things as the same Mm -hmm. if they're related to each other by that kind of relativistic symmetry. So it's it's really an interesting story, and I'm no physicist by any means, but... um, I think Poincaré understood what kind of formal geometry was required and what kind of symmetries would like go well with uh, what was being understood about the speed of light and the speed of light is a limit. But I think he wasn't quite willing to accept that like space was actually like that. I love it. He understood exactly the right geometric formalism, but it took Einstein to really say like, no, that's not just like a formal thing that you're working out what the symmetries are. That's actually how space is. It's just not like we thought.
0: That's see, that's that's the genealogy of the idea. That's what makes it so fantastic to me. The, um, I, I something excites me about, um, if you didn't have a, if you don't have a tool to think about a certain thing, then you don't think about that certain thing, you know? And there's like, um, the, there's a story from art history with you know the the creation of uh, a perspective, uh, which there's a long story behind how that happened. But the, you know, you look at art before perspective, and it's kind of crappy in a certain way, right? <laughs> like the, the 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 heads are odd, and the bodies aren't in the right place, and everybody's the same size no matter where they are on the landscape. And there was a urge that, to put things larger if they were more important. It really it wasn't a, a, an attempt to make things seem, as what we would say today, photorealistic in a work of art. But then once... Uh, right, and
1: but, but of course people were seeing the same things that we see.
0: That's what's with nuts. You know, they're like, I'm looking at the street and then I paint this thing that looks nothing like the street. But once uh, the geometry of perspective was understood by artists and there's a great story behind how that happened, but we don't have time to get into it, but it involves putting a mirror in front of a, a church and then painting through the mirror to make the thing match up perfectly, basically tracing on the real world. Uh, You could take the lines from that and extend them out infinitely as best you could imagine it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, perspective and vanishing points. And once that's introduced into art, all of a sudden there's this moment where art looks like the real world from that point forward until you want to play with that and get crazy again. And, but the same, that thinking tool of perspective and vanishing points, the same sort of thing happens all throughout mathematics and geometry where, oh, what a great thinking tool. Thanks for making it. I will now use it to construct this thing with it. And that's how you get Einstein in the course of the genealogy of the history of ideas. I think that is so cool.
1: Now one thing I don't know, though, and I wonder if you know, is at that moment, at the moment of that shift in representational art, when people saw the new paintings, were they like, oh, this looks way better? This is awesome? Or are they like <laughs> the old paintings look good those look like paintings this looks like some weird uncanny thing that makes me uncomfortable that i don't like i mean i actually have no idea what it is was it instant was there instant uptake
0: there was um when i only know about the uh, Brunelleschi or brunichelli who did the batistri in uh italy who did who's the guy who's like famously i invented perspective although i'm sure that he was co-invented or co-discovered but he uh, and the, apparently the Greeks had also some at some places in the ancient world had figured it out, too. But then it was lost and we don't know how they figured it out. But for that one particular dude who did that one particular thing, he had lines around the street to come look at that painting because you could look at the painting and then look at the actual building and then look at the painting and look at the actual building. And it, apparently it freaked people the fuck out. And they, they were like, oh, whoa. It was it was like a. Um, Avatar or Jaws 3D or something. It was a t- it really caused quite the stir.
1: I bet there was people at the time who were like the vinyl collectors but of painting who were like, I like <laughs> the hisses and pops, like I don't like it to look exactly like the church. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. like this sort of more human touch.
0: Yeah, I like it when the horse is as big yeah. as the person. I mean that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> so something that I also have gotten onto a kick about and went down a rabbit hole on the internet about, and I was so happy when this appeared in the book was Arbor. The concept that I think you see this a lot in uh, woo, uh, ah music in the background, stock art kind of stuff that floats around the internet, Where's people independently, I'm not making fun of that at all, I think it's great, um, will independently say, oh look, an eye looks a lot like a galaxy, or trees seem to be very similar to rivers, which seem to be very similar to... Um, circulatory systems and lightning bolt patterns and that sort of thing. Um, I love that there's not only is that something that uh, scientists already know about, and there's already a word for it and a deep study of it that has led to incredible, bonkers, mathematical insights. Tell me everything there is to know about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, when when I started writing this book, I think, you know, originally... I was like, well, maybe it'll be organized around like each chapter about a different geometry. And that ended up not to be a real workable concept because I'm just too disorganized that I like, mm-hmm. uh, I start researching one thing and then I want to write about some other thing and it never fits into the neat categories I imagine, mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's the same for you. Cause I know what kind of stuff you write and I'm sure it also like things <laughs> escape me. their neat categories that you yes. might've imagined yes, on day book, one.
0: The book that it, that was eventually, uh, finished is, does not appear anything like the one that, that it started as. So that's a, that's a great part of writing books. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Let's, let's, let's praise patient and understanding editors oh who my are God. happy with not getting the book that we told that we were going to write. For
0: sure. As in my book proposal and my final product are not close. The uh, and but I will credit my editor uh Nikki Papadopoulos who who took a chapter out of the middle and said if you start with this chapter the whole book makes sense and she was completely right so that's that's wow. yes praise to editors
1: but yeah one thing that did survive from the original concept was that you know the geometry of the tree which is so fundamental and appears in so many places like from literal trees themselves to family trees. So, I mean, the very metaphor we use suggests that there's some geographic, uh, sorry, geometric similarity. Mm -hmm.
0: Taxonomies of all kinds, like a tree of life. uh, uh, The, the, the building up of a small idea to, uh, of a, to a giant one or the other way around. Like you see this pattern all over, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even, I was one of the things that I didn't get to do, like, you know, Darwin and the tree of life, this famous diagram that's in his book, not mentioned in my book, I just didn't get to it. Um, but you know, one, the thing that I write about the most is the tree of a game, because it turns out that the geometry of a tree exactly describes what happens when you play a game. Mm-hmm with specified rules and it, you know, it reminded me of something that you said, um, you know, near the beginning of our talk together mm-hmm. um, that you not only, it's not just that you're learning the rules of a game, you're learning that a game has rules mm-hmm. and what kind of rules they are. Like mm-hmm. maybe that you take turns and that maybe that, you know, uh, the board doesn't spontaneously change by chance, like during your, uh, uh, during your play. Well, there's a certain class of games, that are like that, you know, two-player games, like No Chance, Having a Definite Ending, which all of them are described by a tree. And what that means is that even though games like Checkers or Nim, which is a sort of like very small-scale game, or Tic-Tac-Toe or Connect Four, or Mm -hmm. I forgot which names I already said, or Chess Mm -hmm. or Go, those are all obviously games with different rules, but they have the same kind of rules, which means that, the method by which they can be analyzed is, in the end, exactly the same, and that's why, if you know, for instance, a modern uh, machine learning engine um, essentially doesn't care which game it's learning. It's not mm-hmm. built to learn go. It's built to learn how to play well mm-hmm. a game with any set of rules of a diff- of of that certain kind. And so, you know, I think it's something that people tend not to appreciate, which is that. Um, a game of that form, a game like chess, or a game like tic tac toe, which probably feel to you pretty different, um, they're really different only in size. Mm-hmm. Like there is an answer to the question of whether a perfect chess player, uh, in a, if two perfect chess players matched up, would the first player to go always win, or would the second player always to go always win, or would it always end in a draw? There's an actual answer to that question we don't know it but there's an answer to that question the same way there's an answer to the question of like what is the product of these two 500-digit numbers it's just that the chess problem is much harder and we don't know the answer
0: and we don't know it because there's just so many variables in chess is that why
1: exactly but it's it's a matter of time right if we sort of had like an infinitely fast infinitely large computer or not even infinitely, just like much bigger than one that could exist in the physical universe. Mm-hmm. It is a finite problem that is in principle solvable. Of course, when you say in principle, um, you're hiding a lot. But it's not a different kind of problem than multiplying two numbers together. It's just a different scale.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a lot of ideas that pop out of this. One, <clears throat> talking about the operation, you know, the rules of that make sense. You know, you have a thing of high concentration that eventually finds its way to the lowest concentration and it's going to branch off until it finds its level. And similar things happen in the algorithm that builds a tree, because it eventually ends on a leaf on the end of a branch. And we see it all throughout so many different uh concepts and ideas and human-created uh trees that try to make sense of things. When you relate it to games though, I that's when psychology stuff pops in my head because the whole concept of Assimilation and accommodation—the idea of how we make sense of the world by increasing levels of complexity—is uh, they they talk a great deal in that uh, that domain of psychology about uh, cognitive psychology about games because a game is and you describe it perfectly in the book. You, you, the first thing is to try to understand the geometry of the board and then the rules of the game and then what is the geometry of the game play, and eventually that's the meta game. And you, see, you hear that all the time in competitive video games where people are trying to figure out the meta. They begin with something like Call of Duty and they understand, okay, this is the game world and how I interact in it, and that's the physics of it. Okay, here are the rules of what I can do to interact in that world. And now there is a better way to do those things, which is the meta game to play if I want to win. And you write in the book there is it is unknowable to find the perfect way to play, just like because uh, Call of Duty has more variables than chess. If you're, you know, so <laughs> it's strangely it's strange to say that, but it is true. And um, this also maps onto this is how he, brains prefer to make sense of things. That's why the storytelling is such an essential part of, of conveying ideas, because it maps onto assimilation and accommodation and the and what it's like to figure out a game and that's why artificial intelligence is start out by trying to learn games. Cause that's learning the universe of a very tiny, un- learning the rules of a very tiny universe. I'm too excited about this. I feel it. Um, the <laughs> storytelling is the same thing. Cause a good story. If you is always starts, if you, you can think of all the best movies, first shot is the establishing shot. That's the geometry of the board. Then we see the characters and how they can interact with each other and what they do. Love it. That's the, that's the rules of the game. And then the plot is the geometry of the tree. That's the metagame that's being played by the story and how it plays out, unknowable to the viewer because you don't know, you haven't seen the movie until its completion yet. So, Mm. (laughs) I
1: I wish you all could see me nodding vigorously. It doesn't come through in podcast form, but that's what I do to show approval.
0: We were talking about games and I wanted to mention this before we bounce out into the last thing I wanted to talk about. Um, You talk about strategies for not being wrong. Um... And you have this nice little, almost like, it feels like a cone of some kind where you say, if a decision you have to make is exactly identical with one you've made before, make the decision you now consider, in retrospect, the right one. Otherwise, flip a coin. (laughs) Is that a rule to live by? Tell me what you think of that.
1: No, I mean, that's, that's sort of meant to be, in some sense, a cartoon of a way that might superficially seem to be a good rule for live by, for living by, but it's actually completely useless because it's a way of retrospectively being completely right about everything. On every data point you've tested and observed, it's completely right. But faced with even the slightest amount of novelty, you're like, I'm sorry, this is not identical with the situation that I've been in before. Yes. Um, thus, I'm completely lost. So, I mean, in some sense, I don't think here's a point I think I didn't make in the book, but now, you know, the problem with talking about your book is you see all the things you should have said. You know, really what you are doing is saying, it's not so much that I want a situation that's identical with a situation I've seen before. I want to be able to measure if a situation is like in some way, is similar to a situation I've encountered before, and then Mm -hmm. maybe do the same thing that worked in that situation. But the moment you say that, the moment you introduce some notion of similarity on situations, you're you're being geometric, right? You're sort of saying there's some space of all possible situations in which some things are close to each other and some things are far away. So this is an incredible conceptual leap from just when are two things exactly the same versus when are they close enough to being the same that my decision in one case is a reliable guide to what to do in the other case. That's so a good. drastic conceptual leap.
0: This is a huge, this is huge to me because brains are good enough. Machines and we live in a good enough world at all times. But when you are in the depths of depression or anxiety or some terrible life event is put the world askew, at any point in time where you feel that existential crisis, whether or not you even realize it's that, this is what often appeals to you. Like, I should do the same thing I've always done. And the sense is, this situation is identical. I see a pattern that I'm repeating and I need to do this or not do this, but like we live in a good enough world, which, so there is no such thing as an identical situation, which is like, I'm just bouncing off your idea there because I mean, you know, the earth is in a different place in space, like two seconds from from two seconds ago, like at every, there are 1 billion upon 1 billion upon 1 billion variables that have all shifted from the last time you experienced something. It is like it in some way. Uh, but it is infinitely nuanced from that thing that you'd experienced before. And that's why if you try to reduce yourself to these sort of algorithmic rules of life, wherever they come from, um, that eliminates the ability to be nimble in the face of novelty. And novelty is eternally the rule. That is the actual thing that you're experiencing at all times. An internal novelty that is kind of like maybe sort of this thing kind of like, I can pull somebody from, I put somebody in a time machine from the 1600s and bring them here. They'll acclimate just fine because it's kind of like, you know, whatever it was like there. But we would never say that it was identical. That's impossible. But that's also true from one month ago to today, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Right. And it's a great example that, you know, in, I mean, this is kind of a philosophical chestnut at this point, right? But like, you yourself are not identical with the you of a year ago or a month ago or a minute ago. And yet, obviously it's conceptually useful to sort of assert some kind of identity between those various renditions of you, right? And to sort of be like, what worked for one me is like, you know, that's probably the way to go if I'm going to guess what's going to work for the present me. It would be like absurd to reject that geometry.
0: It's great because you talk about Kasparov in the book playing these chess games at a level as high as anybody's going to get. And still, you know, he could be defeated by a computer, but he talked about two humans playing each other. He marveled at when things surprised him. And you have this great quote. This is another one of your incredible quotes. I love this quote. Uh, Human chess is not, a we're talking about the tree uh, metaphors we were using earlier. Uh, Human chess is not a tree. It's a battle that takes place in a tree. Mm, I'm going to write that. I have a blackboard of quotes that I have uh, uh, off of my kitchen. I'm putting that one quote in there because I feel like that says a lot about a lot of things. Uh, it's okay to be a human being playing human games in a, in, a, in a world that likely so has this mathematical substrate that is, if we had a computer powerful enough, could demonstrate it. Yeah.
1: And, and people ask a lot, you know, with a sort of tone of worry in their voice, like, well, what happens to chess? Like, what happens to go when the machines are better at the game uh, than human beings? And one of the things, you know, much more than either of those games in the book, I write about checkers, because I love the story of checkers. It's like, so fascinating. And it's like, farther along, right? I mean, this sort of era of human domination and checkers ended earlier because I've been obsessed with the story of Marion Tinsley, like the kind of greatest human checkers player who ever lived or ever will live now uh, for years. And I was so happy to get a chance to write about it. But what I think is so interesting is that people did not stop playing checkers, even though the game is solved, even though we now know mathematically that two perfect checkers players will always play to a draw, just like tic-tac-toe. And you might think like, well, then I guess people would just stop. Nope. People still play, there are still human championships of checkers, and I think what that shows you is that people play because the point of a game is not to win, the point of a game is to play the game.
0: Let me ask a question for your book before I take up too much of your time, which I already have. Um, You have a chapter, which is like, how did math break democracy? And then also how can we fix it? So if you just talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I've been thinking about and talking about and writing about a lot over the last few years, is this question about drawing legislative districts, which seems like the most boring and and technical and granular subject imaginable. And it is not something that I think even people who are really interested in politics spent that much time Mm. thinking about. Um, But it's actually of tremendous political importance and it's like deeply geometric Um, because it turns out that this sort of like simple operation of dividing a state or a country up into districts How you draw those lines drastically affects who gets elected. Um, And so this is something which is a super, super live topic in Wisconsin where I live, but I think uh, maybe because the the so-called gerrymandering, this process of drawing these district lines with partisan motivation in order to make sure that your party holds a majority of seats and can write laws almost independently of like what the population of the state is voting for. it's very far advanced here, but it's going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it goes on with both parties, by the way, in Wisconsin, it's a Republican thing, but there are other states where it's a Democratic thing. Um, and it's it, the, in this story, there's math all the way down, right? <laughs> there's math in how the people drawing these cooked lines are doing it. And there's math in the kind of detective work of being able to uncover and prove before a court Um that this is being done, and to measure just how much of an effect it has, just how much it's kind of thumbing the scale yeah. of uh, who gets to sit in the legislature and make the laws. Among them, by the way, among those laws they make is what the lines are going to be the next time. <laughs> so, I mean, this is sort of fundamental example of feedback where mm-hmm. the legislators are deciding who their voters are going to be, instead of the voters deciding who the legislators are going to be. So, it's it's one of those things where. It's now a pretty live political issue, and it's gonna be even more so over the next years, the census figures having just come in and those lines for the next 10 years being drawn. But um, it's a great example of something that, you know, I and plenty of other people have written kind of like thousand word, 1500 word magazine pieces about like what's going on. But to really get into the guts of it and understand it takes a little more time than that to talk about like where it comes from, what the history of it is, why it's sort of so much more of an issue now than it has been ever before. Um,
0: but it's know, an I don't applica- like to be like... It's an app- But it's an application of like deep math being that, that exactly that will affect how much
1: your taxes are. Right? Exactly. But to, to really understand how it works like requires a lot of the ideas I set up earlier in the book. That's why I put it last. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I don't like to be political. It's not really sort of like what I see as the point of writing books. But in this one area, I feel like maybe what I really don't like is to be controversial. Hmm. And the truth is that this is actually not something that's that controversial. This practice of gerrymandering, like when people know what it is, they don't like it. Whether the Democrats or Republicans or what have you, Um, it is something that has succeeded by taking place mostly in the dark. So I, it is political this like last part of the book but i think it's actually not that controversial i think i just want people to know like what's actually going on and the extent to which politicians are insulating themselves from the electorate exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of like what under any i mean people have different ideas about what democratic principles are but no version of them involves politicians sort of finding ways to make sure that they maintain their majority against what they consider the sort of like whims of a hostile electorate, right? Nope, right. they're supposed to have to pay attention to that. Yeah. And they're not supposed to be able to be immune to that. You know, I'm I'm hitting one aspect of it. But if I'm allowed to pitch other people's books on your podcast, I mean, uh, you know, Kathy O'Neill, a colleague of mine has a wonderful book called Weapons of Math Destruction that's entirely Ooh. about this. And uh, Meredith Broussard um she has a book called artificial unintelligence and she has a new one i mean she's really an expert on on these kinds of things and they both meredith and kathy have written like whole books that really sort of like hammer Mm. home how this is an absolutely pervasive thing i'm choosing one aspect that happens to know like a lot about like state assembly districts in the state of wisconsin well and also virginia and pennsylvania and north carolina and all kinds of Mm. other places i know about wisconsin the best but um but yes it's absolutely a pervasive uh a pervasive thing. And I think what I like about talking about that stuff is that if you think about it just as a math problem, it really shows how you're going to get terrible, useless answers. On the other hand, if you think about it just as a political problem and don't seriously engage with the mathematics of what the algorithm is actually doing, you're also going to get wrong and useless answers. You can't unwind the strands. They're both there. So good.
0: I love it. Um, let me uh, let us have an exit. <laughs> and, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to throw some quotes from yourself back at you. And then you can get us out of here with your current thoughts. You talk about where arithmetic, this is a quote, where arithmetic is a slog, geometry is a kind of liberation. Insight's so powerful, it blows the walls out sideways or makes them invisible. And then you have an aside this is poetry. <laughs> um, that's an example of accommodation by way of assimilation which i'm into and that's something that you talk about in detail with flatland and i feel like that's the best place to exit is talking about um geometry was at one time seen as dangerous um uh, by uh as this thing that represents a source of authority because the things you can show in um something like the pythagorean theorem is true and it's not true Uh, because of any individual who discovered it. Uh, It's true no matter how it had ever been discovered. And that is a separate authority from anything that you chose before then to be the authority on what is it is not so, what is it is not reality, what is it is not true. Um, And you relate that to flatlanders and all sorts of things. So with that, as my tea up to you, take us out of here with some deep thoughts concerning uh, what it's like to uh, discover things that are true beyond the authorities.
1: I, and it's, it's you know, that's kind of the, where I end the book I, with these two poems of Rita Dove, who, you know, I knew is a very famous and distinguished poet, but I didn't know was like sort of a childhood math man who wrote a couple of poems like about learning math. I mean, who knew? Um, and writes about this kind of electric moment of acquiring knowledge. As you say, it's sort of like, not because somebody told you, not because it's like written in the book, but because the knowledge is just there available to you uh, to build up from first principles by yourself, incontrovertible once you understand it. That is a grasping of power, if understood correctly. And you know, you said geometry used to be seen as dangerous. I think it should still be seen as dangerous. (laughs) Let's let's show some respect. (laughs) I I think it's still true. Uh, that hopefully it's a way for, it's a very powerful moment for a child or an adult to understand that they can make knowledge by themselves and the authority is themselves and their own insight. Um, That's an incredible moment. And that's what, um, you know, for all that there's a lot lacking in our math classrooms, just like talking to people about their education, I think there's plenty of times that people are still finding that in school. Um, People are, you know, people who say, because there are plenty of people who say like geometry is the only thing I liked. That was the thing where I sort of, I really liked the way it clicked together. Um, They're describing that feeling of making their own knowledge, which is an amazing thing, which ideally, right? Like all school would do. It's hard to meet ideals, but you know, I think I see writing a book like this as, continuous with my teaching you know what i do in the classroom and so um we try to bring that to our students in the classroom whether it's a third grader learning math for the first time or a college student and i hope in a small way i'm able to bring that to some people with my books
0: well you did you really this is a real gift this has been great i think you've let me take up way more time than i said i would but i'm really excited about these concepts
1: oh it was super fun thank you
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to You Are Not So Smart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, soundclouds, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or You Are Not so Smart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one person operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free but the higher amounts that'll get you posters t-shirts sign books extra content and other stuff like that the opening music is clash by caravan palace this music is by banjo apocalypse and the best way to support the show just tell everyone you know about it tell everybody sing it from the rooftops and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode